Let's Get Haunted with your host, Matt Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 95 of Let's Get Haunted. It is our second episode of the Christmas holiday December season. Yes. Are you so excited to continue on with our themed episodes? I am excited. I feel like we've never really done super on theme episodes for December before. Well, I feel like it's kind of a slippery slope because on one hand, you're like, fuck yeah, Christmas. But then on the other hand, you're like, oh, it sucks for everyone who doesn't celebrate Christmas. Maybe we shouldn't bring it up because they're really missing out because it's the best. Well, (laughs) as we've learned and discussed on this show, the Christmas tree has its roots in a pagan tradition. Right. I think all people, regardless of what you celebrate or don't celebrate, should just have a tree in their house. I think everyone should celebrate everything. That's why I don't get. Um, My fiance is Jewish. So last year was my first year to celebrate Hanukkah. And I had already felt like, you know, I should celebrate every holiday. Right. And but now it's the perfect excuse. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so if you guys have some other cool holidays out there that we don't know about, Tell let us. us know. Because I really know only know about like the big pharma of holidays, like big yeah. holiday, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, big tree. Cr- yeah. yeah cr- big candelabra. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like Christmas and Hanukkah and winter solstice or, and Kwanzaa and Kwanzaa uh, and whatever else is in that song. You know that one that's like Kwanzaa, Kwanzaa. I don't, but I already okay. love it. First Reba the Harvest. I feel like I know it. Yeah, I think I learned it in elementary school and it just really stuck. I was like, this needs space in my brain right. forever. That's like the I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a <laughs> yes! bill. Yes. And I'm sitting Schoolhouse here Rock. on Capitol Hill. Yes, yes, I know so much. Actually, don't know anything about right. politics but everything i do know about politics is from schoolhouse Rock. Yeah, yeah yeah and also uh conjunction junction what's, what's your, your function? function wow so many yeah. pops how, yeah there was how has nobody done modern remixes of those songs oh they have they're just not successful oh okay well i feel like <laughs> on tiktok come on somebody needs to make that into a sound need That's to make true. up a catchy dance right. to the bill song somebody dress up as a bill get that yeah. going and yeah. give us credit right Right. You should. Because I don't want to put in the effort to do that. No. But I'm an ideas man. Yeah, I feel yeah. the same. I feel like we're both ideas man. I agree. And that's why our <laughs> podcast sometimes is structured and sometimes is not. But I would love to shout out our donors who continue to donate to this shit show of a podcast. Yes. Kinsley M., Crystal and Jimmy Bob person. Thank you so much for donating on Kofi and Venmo to Jimmy us. Bob person. That's the name that they chose to run with. And I support it. And I see you, Jimmy Bob person. And wow. you are valid. Yeah, Jimmy Bob. I would like to thank once again, Shelby H and Brielle S. Thank you guys so much for donating. Oh, wait, actually, some people donated to me this morning that I should read off. Let me go through my shit show of a uh, emails. What is this? What are all these random emails Spam that don't emails, matter? Spam. Yeah. Okay. Extended car warranty emails. Right. Exactly. Like, We're still sir going. and or ma'am, I don't own my car. So joke's on you. <laughs> this is a poorly designed scam. Bella Edison. Bella Edson. Thank you, Bella. Thank you, Really appreciate that. It was awesome. And also Meg Robinson. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate you. We definitely appreciate it. If you would like to donate to our show, you can look in the show notes and we have all kinds of links there. Or you can go to our website, letsgethaunted.com and figure it out yourself. At this point, if you don't know how to donate to us, it's understandable, but right. I don't have time because we've only reserved the studio for one hour today and we normally reserve it for two Right for this episode. So, Natalia, yeah. are you ready to get into? Super ready. What is it? Let's a go. haunted 
Christmas extravaganza. I am so ready. This is so exciting. You know, I love when they have like Christmas episodes of your favorite shows. I get really into them. It gets me really into the spirit of whatever holiday is coming up. Yeah. It could be Easter. It could be Mm -hmm. uh, Flag Day. Flag Day. Flag Day is my birthday, by the way. Your birthday's on Flag Day? June 14th. I never knew that it was Flag Day on your birthday. Yeah, that's how I learned about Flag Day. I was like, this day's always on my fucking birthday. What is it? Still don't know. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I think it's just a day where we think about flags. Yeah. Red flags. Green flags. Blue flags. Yeah. Yeah. All kinds of flags. I'm ready. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. I need you to mentally prepare because we're switching gears to some dark stuff okay i am smiling very big yeah (laughs) how about you try to take my smile away with your story okay i'm ready for the challenge los angeles is home to many infamous crimes and haunted locations from the park where the body of the black dahlia was discovered sawed in half to the opulent estate where famed la mobster bugsy siegel was gunned down Mm. the city of angels is certainly home to some of the darkest unsolved mysteries of all Time. This is an episode on LA and Christmas? I'm not going to say yes and I'm not going to say no, but the answer is yes. Well, my smile's even bigger now. Yes. So. Since our podcast is recorded in Los Angeles and Christmas is fast approaching, it seems appropriate to tell the tale of one of the most haunted mansions in our city. The Los Feliz Christmas Murder Mansion. What? Okay, I know where Los Feliz is, and I know what Christmas is, and I know what murder is, and I know what a mansion is. Well, if you take all of those things and you combine them, that is what today's story is about. Are you telling me there's a mansion in Los Feliz where there was a murdering on Christmas? You are so close. You are almost red hot. In fact, only a couple details away, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you what those details are. Amazing. But before we continue, I do want to say to any of our listeners that are not from Los Angeles, the neighborhood of Los Feliz is often referred to as Los Feliz. And that's just because we use our American accents when pronouncing uh, Spanish words in California. Wait, so which way does everyone say it? Los Feliz is the way that we pronounce it in LA. The proper way to pronounce it would be Los Feliz. What did I say? Uh, You just said whatever I said. Okay. Yeah. So I'm good? Yeah, you're good. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And as an example, I'll say we have a place called Hermosa, which technically should be Hermosa. Herbrosa. Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's a lot of different cities, different suburbs around the LA area that are technically pronounced incorrectly i just want to like throw that out there before we get a million comments of people being like why are you saying it low speed yeah actually there's a street called sepulveda that everyone says when i first moved here i was like oh sepulveda yeah so now i would like to tell you about this murder mansion located in los Feliz. located at 2475 glendower place in one of the most affluent sections of the los angeles neighborhood known as los Feliz. The Los Feliz murder house stands menacingly atop a sloped driveway, giving it the illusion of an angry entity looking down on those mortals who dare to walk on the sidewalk that crosses in front of its property line. The house itself is surrounded by a chain link metal fence, preventing curious onlookers from peeking through its windows. Nevertheless, the house attracts many visitors throughout the year, some of whom even hop over the fence and try to break into the dilapidated building. What those who have successfully broken into the house have seen has caused the home to become somewhat of an urban legend among locals, a time capsule hiding a dark history within its walls. The house has changed hands many times since it was first abandoned in 1959, 
but so far it seems that none of the new owners have ever actually chosen to live inside it. Just why was this house abandoned in the first place, you might ask? And why does it continue to be such a controversial fixture in Los Angeles? Yeah, why? To answer both of these questions, we need to go back to the beginning, all the way to 1925. According to the New York Post, the original construction of the home that would later become known as the Murder Mansion began in 1925 when architect Harry E. Weiner broke ground on the design. Hired by a wholesale fruit seller named Harry F. Shoemaker, the Spanish Revival-style home was constructed for about $20,000, which would total around $315,000 in today's money. Built atop a 0.6-acre lot on a hill, the home is set back from the street and features a steep sloping driveway on one side and about 50 concrete steps winding up the front. Mm -hmm. The five-bed, four-bath mansion was occupied by Harry Shoemaker and his wife Florence until 1928, just three years after the couple built the custom home. Hold on a second. Five beds, four baths is a mansion? It's three stories tall, and I'm going to go into more of what you can find in that home shortly. Okay. I thought a mansion should be like 10 bedrooms and a chandelier and two staircases when you open the door. So by some accounts, this building has 12 rooms, okay. but it's listed as a five bed, four bath. Whoever did the PR for this house was like, it's a mansion. Yeah, yeah, it's a mansion. That's all you need to know. So as I was saying, the mansion was occupied by Harry Shoemaker and his wife, Florence, until 1928, just three years after the couple built the custom home. Florence tragically died of heart disease inside the home on July 1st, 1928, and her husband Harry soon followed suit, dying of pneumonia inside the mansion just 27 days later. Oh, that's weird. Yes, very, very uh, interesting. Yeah. Following the untimely deaths of Harry and Florence, the home was then rented out to several tenants. Records show that at least one of these tenants, a 21-year-old man named Donald Beaton, also died in the home of a freak infection that caused him to become bedridden while living there. But little else is known about the history and lives of any of these occupants. For nearly 30 years, from approximately 1931 through 1954, the home was quietly occupied by the Stouffer family. John Stouffer Jr., his wife Beverly Stouffer, and their son Jack Stouffer. Not much is known about this time period or why the family ended up moving out of the home after living in it for so long, but it doesn't appear that any tragedies occurred during this time. Although three people seem to have perished in the murder mansion in the 1920s, the tale that has resulted in the alleged hauntings of the estate didn't take place until the late 1950s. So let's get into that story. Hmm. Well, already three people have died in it. I know. Seems a little sus. Yeah. And it's about to get more sus. Oh. Dr. Harold Nathan Perelson was born in Manhattan, New York on February 26, 1909. Born to two Jewish-Russian immigrants named Harry and Molly Perelson, Harold would work hard in school and eventually graduate from the Long Island College of Medicine on June 4, 1935, moving to Boise, Idaho shortly thereafter. On October 14, 1938, Harold Perelson completed his residency and moved to Los Angeles, California. About one year before officially being granted his certificate to practice medicine, Harold married Lillian Minnie Silver on September 7, 1937. 
It's unclear how or where the couple met, but birth records show that Lillian was also born in New York, so it's possible that they had known each other since childhood. Lillian was born in the Bronx in 1916, making her seven years younger than her new husband. In 1940, World War II was just beginning to heat up, and all young men in the United States were required to fill out draft cards. Harold's draft card lists him as a white male, five foot seven inches tall, and weighing 150 pounds with black hair, hazel eyes, and a quote-unquote ruddy complexion. This draft card, which was filled out on October 16, 1940, also lists Lillian Perelson as his wife and shows two home addresses for the couple. Ruddy complexion? That's his official, that's like what the government was like, this is how we're going to document you? Yes. And I was going to ask you, do you know what ruddy complexion means? I mean, when you say something's ruddy, it's like murky, right? It means reddish. Reddish. So he was a Caucasian male with a ruddy complexion. So when you looked at him, his skin was tinged red. It's just something that people used to write down when describing what people looked like. That's interesting. I feel like you would just be Caucasian. You would think. I know. So now in modern um, government forms, it's like so undetailed. It's like check a box. And if none of these apply to you, fuck you. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah, They don't even talk about it. It's like check all of these boxes or this one box that says you refuse to check these boxes. Exactly. And then we'll guess for you. (laughs) Yeah. So on his draft card, there's two home addresses listed for the couple. The first address is listed as 2624 Walnut in Walnut Park, Los Angeles, but then this address is crossed out in pencil with the following written above it, 2651 East Slauson Avenue, Huntington Park, California. Records show that Harold was self-employed as a cardiologist and that he was affiliated with a medical clinic in Inglewood, though it is unclear if he actually worked out of this office or if he worked out of a different one. Census records from around this time also show that Dr. Perelson had listed, quote-unquote, additional income from other jobs, and employment records show that he was a professor of cardiology at USC School of Medicine, in addition to having several published clinical reports and and pending patents for a few different medical devices. Yes, this is like a successful, smart, entrepreneurial slash doctor guy. Yeah, I mean, he has at least three jobs, according to these records, so he must be making pretty good money and he must be pretty driven. Right. Right. Specifically, the two clinical reports published by Dr. Perelson that are still available to view today in the Public Library of Medicine are titled Occipital Nerve Tenderness, a Sign of Headache, published in August 1947, and The Electrocardiogram in Familial Periodic Paralysis, published in June of 1949. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, I read that one. Yeah, it was very illuminating, the right? Electrocardiogram of Endometriology. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to take a guess <laughs> about what either of these uh, well, the first one, were about? Yeah, the first one he was basically saying that if this nerve is sore, it can lead to headaches or something. Or I, That's my hypothesis. He's talking about the relationship between a nerve and headaches. And then the second one, say what it was again. The electrocardiogram in familial periodic paralysis. Okay, the electrocardiogram. So he's talking about the heartbeat, like the electric pulse that goes through the heart in familial, in regards to familial, what is it? Periodic something? Periodic paralysis. In regards to familial. Oh, so maybe like the heart, the electric pulse going through the heart in regards to different parts of the body being paralyzed? 
So these are all very good guesses. I'm going to be real with you. I did not read either of these reports, but I did read what other people had written about these okay. reports. Yeah. So this is my understanding and it could be wrong. I am not a doctor. Disclaimer. Right. Okay. I guess his paper on headaches was about how people who get migraines due to like eye pain. Yeah. A lot of that is caused by food allergies was his hypothesis. Okay. okay. Yeah. Then the second one was about this condition called familial periodic paralysis, which is where people, um, for some unknown reason, will develop like quadriplegia, but it's curable. It's muscular. Yeah. It's like your arms oh, and wow. legs are completely paralyzed temporarily, uh-huh. but it's not permanent. It's just like you'll wake up one morning and your arms and legs don't work and you're like, what the fuck? And then right. a, like a day later, you're back to normal. I've never heard of that. Yeah. So he had made a connection between people with this condition and low potassium levels. Oh, wow. And so he was conducting clinical studies where he would inject people with pure potassium serum yeah. that had this condition and then within a few minutes they would start like moving and walking he's around again. kind of in his own way sort of like a homeopathic doctor in his own way like he was saying oh instead of treating these headaches and migraines with like painkillers like why don't we instead try to look and see if their diets are causing inflammation I think he was doing a little bit of both. I think right. you're right. I but think he was prob- also giving you heavy painkillers. Yeah, okay. I think so. But honestly, is that progressive for the 40s? Probably. Yeah. To I mean, be like, hey, everything- change your diet, but also here's cocaine. Yeah, like everything was progressive for the 40s. That's like living true. past 60 was like, wow, you're a modern person. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> In addition to finding success in the medical field, Dr. Perelson also found success as a family man when Lillian gave birth to three children total. Eldest daughter Judy Perelson was born in 1941. Son Joel David Perelson was born on April 7, 1946. And the youngest member of the family, Deborah Lynn Debbie Perelson, was born on February 16, 1948. Okay. As Dr. Perelson's medical career expanded, so did the amount of money he was making. And in 1956, he purchased the beautiful Los Feliz mansion on Glendower Place for around $30,000, which is just under $300,000 in today's money. Okay. Even in the 1950s, the Los Feliz neighborhood was considered a posh and upper-class area of L.A., with many wealthy business owners and even silver screen celebrities choosing to reside in the area. Postings advertising the sale of this home described it as a 5,000-square-foot, three-story home with a library, a ballroom with a bar, a spiral staircase, and a three-to-five-car garage, depending on how large your cars were. Wow. Interestingly, just a seven-minute walk or 0.4 miles from the Perelson family's new home and visible from their third-story window was the famed Innes House. Natalia, have you ever heard of the Innes House? No, I've heard... No. Okay. Shall I have... I or had, yes. Which do you want? No, I want you yes. to say no because it makes me feel better because okay, I no. had never heard of it either. Who's Innes? Okay. So this could be its own episode entirely, so I'll be very brief. But the Innes House is a historical landmark and residential dwelling designed by famed American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, I know who that is. Okay, yes. For wealthy couple Charles and Mabel Innes in the 1920s. You should say it's a, f- a Frank Lloyd Wright house. I would have been like, yeah, I know what that is. Look, I'm going to be real with you. I would not have known. Like, oh. I've never heard of Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, it sounds familiar, right? Like, right. he has three very, like, strong yeah. names. Yeah. But I couldn't, like, look at a house he and makes, be like, oh, that's a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Yeah, he makes, like, old box houses of, like, cement and, like, 
old wool, it seems like, and they all smell weird, but they cost like $500,000 million because he made them. Yes, you're right. So this house is boxy. Yeah, it's like supposed to be super modern. Yeah. Like we're going to space next year for fun. He built it. Uh, on like a, as inspired by a Mayan temple. So oh, okay, I know what you're talking about. Yes. Then. Okay, so have you seen this house before? Yes, yes, I know which one you're talking about. Okay, so what makes this house significant enough to mention is that according to Wikipedia, the Innes house first acquired morbid fame, providing the exterior facade for House on Haunted Hill, a 1959 B movie. Mm-hmm. Natalia, have you ever heard of the movie House on Haunted Hill? Uh, yeah, but I thought it was like a Rob Zombie movie that was kind of modern. Is that, am I thinking of the wrong thing? House on Haunted Hill. You're probably thinking of, is that House of Wax that you're thinking of? No, there's a, there's definitely a House on Haunted Hill Rob Zombie movie. I saw it and was scarred by it as a child. I'm going to look it up. Google it right now. In the meantime, I'm going to show you the original 1959 trailer for this movie. So let me pull House on Haunted Hill, 1999 American supernatural horror film directed by Will Malone starring... Some other people I don't know. Maybe had nothing so, to do with Rob Zombie. Yeah. I think you're thinking, I think House of Wax is Rob Zombie, isn't it? Or House No, of that's the one with Paris Hilton. Rob Zombie movie. Rob Look, Zombie gotta, only makes movies this. that fuck, okay? He did House, House of, of a Thousand Corpses. Yes. That's what he's talking about. House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah. Okay, are you ready to watch this old-timey horror film trailer? Uh, yeah, am I going to get too scared? Uh, no, but I think it's delightful. I don't like being scared. Here we go. Vincent Price, and you're invited to my party in the house on Haunted Hill, where so far the ghosts have murdered only seven people. So won't you come and make it eight? You'll see human heads without bodies. Mysterious pools of blood dripping from the ceiling. The walls move slowly in against you. Don't try to escape, you can't. waiting so won't you join me in the house on haunted hill hurry or you'll be late for your own funeral wow what did you think of that natalia i had a lot of thoughts during that my first thought was that like the the editing and is just so different, you know, back then mm-hmm. and it's just like almost cringe to me like why are you waiting that long to cut that fucking thing and get to the next thing? Right. Like there's just too much dead space. I feel you like know? we all have such short attention spans now that if yeah. a movie cut like that, like a trailer cut like that came out, we'd just be sitting there in the theater watching it like okay. Yeah, it was just it <sighs> It was just pain. It was hurting me to see that. 
but I thought I love like old timey movie yeah. stuff. It's so interesting. It's such like a glimpse into the past. The past. Yeah. Yeah. I I think about that sometimes now, like three hundred years from now, because we have digital versions that are very high quality, mm-hmm. where you can see very well, you know, what we're doing today. People will be able to look back on that, and like three hundred years ago, we had like oil paintings. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we really don't know what anyone what looked Looks like, like or sounded like or anything. But by the same token, we now have mostly photoshopped photos of ourselves with filters online so isn't it kind of like an oil painting but I guess they used to wear like corsets and like you know really like do their hair up and all of that kind of stuff and now people get Brazilian butt lifts oh that's true yeah yeah we just do it it's just a modern version of the oil paintings where they would like not put someone's wrinkles in what are they gonna think of Brazilian butt lifts or are they gonna be to the point where they like have fucked their whole body is just like two-dimensional yeah 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 I don't know. These are the questions. You guys leave a comment below if you think BBLs uh, will be the norm in 300 years. <laughs> okay, now I mention this horror film because not only was it filmed in a house that you can see from the right. Los Feliz murder mansion, but it was actually being filmed as the Perelsons were moving into their home. Okay, so they probably felt like, wow, we are so fucking rich right now. Yes. They're there's a famous architecture house across the street from us Mm -hmm. and there's real Hollywood movie stars making a Hollywood picture that we're going to see on the big screen across. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be cool. And especially if you're the child of recently immigrated working class people, which the the patriarch of the family, Dr. Perelson was Harold. He's probably like, hell yes. Like, look at me providing for my family. I'm a doctor. I own a house in this ritzy neighborhood. It's a mansion and they're shooting a film. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care that three people died here. What, what that's not going to come back to hurt me. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So to recap, the son of Russian immigrants, Harold Perelson works his way up from the ground up, putting himself through medical school and becoming a respected physician in Los Angeles, right. eventually marrying the love of his life and having three beautiful children, eventually moving into a mansion in the coveted neighborhood of Los Feliz, living among some of the wealthiest business owners and celebrities of the 1950s. Life is good. Life is fucking good. Yeah. But although everything seemed picture perfect on the outside, things were far from perfect inside the Perelson home. According to an article written by Jeff Mache for Medium.com, quote, Dr. Harold Perelson was an injection specialist. Mm-hmm. On December 30th, 1938, he had filed a patent for a medical device of his own invention. The attachment to a hypodermic syringe was designed to inject drugs directly from a sealed glass capsule, reducing the danger of contamination and spillage. Hmm. After developing the device for a decade, in 1949, he entered into a verbal agreement with a gentleman called Edward Shoestack, a man he hoped would turn his general idea of the product into a medical hit. Perelson and Shoestack agreed to split the profits. Harold and Lillian Perelson sunk about $24,496 into the project themselves. Oh, that's a lot because their house was 30000 Exactly. So basically as much as a mansion costs is what they had put into this dream of his. Yeah. And $7,000 of that $24,000 came from Lillian's own savings, which Mm. is pretty unusual, right? Because she was a homemaker. Yeah. Had no way of making money for herself. She must have come from some sort of 
money. Yeah, she came from, uh, I'm sure that this money was something that her family had given her yeah. to like start her life. Then she gets married, um, is not allowed to have a job, is taking care of the kids. Right. And she gives all of this money to her husband mm -hmm. to invest in his invention. Right. So that's pretty risky as a yeah. woman. I think even in the 1950s, you'd be pretty nervous because you'd be like, shit, if this marriage doesn't work out, I now have no work experience and I have no money because oh, I've given shit. it all to yeah. my husband. Okay. That's true. I didn't think about that. I thought you like weren't allowed to get a divorce from them. I mean, I think... I think you could get a divorce. I think it was just frowned upon. Yeah, super yeah. frowned upon. Or like if your husband's cheating on you with someone and you're like, okay, I'm over it. I'm going to move out. You literally can't because right. you have no money. Yeah. Okay. You just cheat on him too. Yeah. Well, and then he murders you, right? <laughs> okay. So according to court documents, Shoestack spent 11 more years developing this syringe for sale, mm -hmm. but he had no intention of giving the doctor any money. So the doctor goes in with this guy, uh, Shoestack. He's a scammer. And he's like, look, I have like the blueprints. I have, I'm an ideas <gasps> man, right? Like, so he's giving him all this money and he hasn't been developing at all. And he hasn't been developing it at all. So he then has to file a formal complaint on July 21st, 1952. So this is four years before they move into that mansion. And in those documents, we can see that Perelson claimed that Shoestack actually gave him a fake name. So Shoestack isn't even this guy's real name. Oh, I, oh my God. I was going to totally rip him a new ass over the stupid name. Yeah, like but a then stack I was of like, shoes. Yeah, but then I was like, I guess other people were named shoemaker and that's stupid too yeah, so yeah. maybe it's real i yeah. don't know no he had given him a totally fake name didn't even know who this guy was and the yeah. guy had disappeared with the rights to the device wow. and with the blueprints of the device wow so a, a shady corporation quote masked the deception of fraud the court heard and the doctor was double crossed Furious, Perelson sued, demanding compensation of $100,000. Natalia, do you know what, what that would be in today's money? Well, let's see. If 30 was like 300 something, uh, that would be like a million? Yes. Great quick maths. Yeah. Love it. Um, Good enough. Yes. It is, it is about a million dollars in today's money. So the case took super long, though. Anyone who's ever had to go to court for fucking anything, yeah. you know that it's almost never worth it to go to court because the amount of money you'll pay in lawyer's fees is going right. to outweigh whatever you win. Right? Yeah, everyone just hopes for a settlement exactly. when they go to court. They don't yes. care about winning. Exactly. That's why a lot of people will just throw bogus um, lawsuits at celebrities because right. they're like, a celebrity is like, not going to bother so themselves. Busy. Yeah, they're like, here's 10 they're grand, like the, no way. The amount that they're going to have to pay their lawyer per hour to work on this case is going to be more than it's just to be like, here's 50 grand, Gail, exactly. don't talk to me. Ex totally. Yeah. And especially because if it's like a movie star, they're probably right. going to be on set or in another country. They don't want to have to come back for court hearings. It's yeah. fucking stupid. Okay, so my point is, similar situation even in the 50s. So Perelson is suing for about a million dollars, but it takes so many years to even come to like a conclusion yeah. that by the time all is said and done, he's at a net loss right. because the court only awards him about $23,000 yeah. and he still has to pay all of his fees. Mm. Like filing fees in the court, time you take off of work um, right. and paying his attorneys so it's not known if the syringe ever actually came to market but even though the guy who stole the plans was found guilty he only ever had to pay a fraction of what he actually owed and it's not even we're not even sure if he even paid that because a lot of people if you sue somebody even if you win if that person has no way of paying you they just right. don't have to pay you because we don't jail people for private debts mm -hmm. yes okay so i'm going to show you some pictures of what this syringe blueprint looked like, just because I think it's interesting to see old timey shit. Yeah. 
Okay, so wait. Want to I'm looking this at to this. Audience. I'm looking at one of those old timey drawings, like an illustration. It's in black and white, and it looks like it's um, yeah, it's like literally drawn with like a, a pen or something. And yeah, I don't really know what I'm looking at. I guess it's a syringe, and it has a plunger going around it, but. Uh, I don't understand this. Yeah, nobody understands this. You um, know what? When you were describing what he was trying to make, I was like, don't they already have on the... I mean, this might have been invented after this, but the the vial, the glass vial, has like a seal on top of it that the needle just goes through. Yes, those are modern inventions right. that we see today. So he tried to do that, but instead of just putting a seal on the vial that the needle can poke through, he tried to figure out a way to make the needle like the that seal. I think, yeah, I mean, look, I'm with you. I don't understand this either. Right. But I think what he was trying to do is like, you know how the medicine comes in that vial, like you yeah. said, and you like pull it out yeah. with the syringe. I think he was trying to make it so that you just stick that whole vial into the plunger uh-huh. and then can push out. Oh. That way there's no risk for contamination. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So you would have a needle and then you would put like a pod on the end of the needle that had the medicine in it. I think that's what it was. Yeah. All, and all of these assets for this episode will be posted to our Instagram at let's get haunted. If right. you guys want to fucking try to decode this yeah. blueprint, this 1940s blueprint. Right. Okay. So, it, so this is the first tragedy, right? Like yes. he loses a bunch of his money. Yeah. Lillian loses basically her entire life savings. Yeah. And it fucking sucks. Right. It's a curse. It's, it's not a good situation. Now, in 1957, the bad luck continues. So this is one year after they move into mm-hmm. this mansion when eldest daughter Judy was driving her two siblings, Debbie and Joel, in her father's 1952 Oldsmobile near their house when they were involved in a car accident at the intersection of Vermont and Los Feliz Boulevards. Oh, no. Are they okay? So according to that article that I was quoting by Jeff Mache, yeah, he writes in his research that the accident occurred when Judy crossed the intersection of Vermont and Los Feliz Boulevards, uh-huh. and she collided with another car. Judy suffered hand and knee injuries, a concussion, and according to medical documents, severe shock. Hmm. Young Joel had a head injury and, quote, severe shock to the nervous system. Deborah's cheek was sliced open. Mm. So it sounds like, you know, while not life-threatening injuries, these are still pretty significant. Yeah, no, those old-time cars were just like death traps. Totally. They didn't have any of the modern safety features we have today. Like, now I know if you get into a wreck, your car has, like, buckle points on the hood and on, the like, the windshield. The windshield, like, will just shatter in a way where you don't just have shards of glass that can, like, go into you. But back then, they didn't have that. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and they have, like, buckle points on the car now. So if the car, like, smashes, it smashes in a way where, like, it absorbs some of the impact where those cars didn't have that. You know, that makes sense to me because, as you know, I dated someone who got in a really bad car accident Mm. and was able, even though the entire car was totally crumpled, he was able to walk away with no injuries. So I think you're right that modern cars are obviously yeah. much safer than old-timey yes. cars. But also, we don't even know if they were wearing seatbelts, right? Because in Probably the 50s, not. people didn't really no. care about safety. They I don't didn't. think they really knew about safety. No. And those old cars, I know because I had a friend who had one of those old Oldsmobiles and, like, they were really into it. They, they're, it's like a boat inside. It's super comfortable. Like, they're big couch seats. And it's basically, like... A, like a little movie theater without the movie it's I'm, my point That's is it's tight. comfortable yeah yeah tight so comfort over safety yes I, I for sure that. Yeah. yeah style okay. and comfort yeah. over safety fashion is pain 
So the other driver, so they get in this accident going through an intersection. They're pretty severely injured. The other driver, Eleanor Keller, claimed to police that Judy, then 16, drove through a red light without looking. But Dr. Perelson took the Keller family to court, claiming Eleanor's carelessness and negligence caused the crash. Mm. And he demanded $20,000 in damages for each daughter. So that's two daughters, so 40 grand and a further 10 grand for his son. Oh, I don't wow. know this why the son was lot. worth less, but yeah, 50 grand. This is, I know, but compared to their other thing that, that was like 30 or something that they were suing for a 24. They were suing for a hundred grand and they oh. won 24. Okay. Right. Yeah. I, it seems, it seems like this is a lot for a car wreck Yeah, where and no one was seriously injured. Exactly. And a lot of people think that it's getting greedy. Yeah. Well, the only reason why he was doing this was probably because right. he had just lost 80 grand. Right. You know what a very wise person once told me? What? Pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered when it comes to money. So like pigs get fat, right? Like people who are um, greedy, like end up getting slaughtered because they're trying to take too much. Like you turn into the oh. hog and then everyone sees that and they're like, we want a piece of that. But don't and you lose pigs it also get slaughtered? Uh, when it doesn't matter. The, okay. the, it's just a <laughs> I mean, cool it sounds thing to tight. say. It sounds tight. It's just a cool thing to say. Okay. okay. Well, we want to be pigs, not hogs then. Right. right. Okay. So he was being a fucking hog. Yes. And even though he ended up winning this lawsuit, the court awarded just a fraction of what he sought, which was only enough to cover his children's medical bills. So it was basically a wash again. Mm. And in fact, may have been another net negative for him because he had to pay to file all these documents, take time off work to go to court and pay for an attorney. Right. So it's another bittersweet victory, Mesh writes in his article, because yes, it's another example of a court case that he won, Mm -hmm. but at what cost? Right. And did he he actually win or is it just more of a formality of like, okay, we can see you you're probably in the right yeah take this fraction of what you wanted and go away right yeah okay so the same year that the house on haunted hill was being shot down the street from the perelsons dr perelson himself reportedly suffered a mental health emergency and was hospitalized for just over a week at temple hospital in los angeles from august 19th 1958 through august 27th 1958 what is a mental health emergency in 1958? That's a great question. And while we do not have the details regarding any diagnosis that may or may not have been made regarding the hospital stay, we do have the records showing what the doctor was treated with. Okay. Because this is in the days before HIPAA. So yeah. all of this stuff is public records. It's great. Which fucking sucks <laughs> for you if you're like having an emergency and you go to the doctor right. and then they just, anyone can come in and be like, oh, what what that guy going for? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. you're like, ah, his poop is too hard. We yeah. have to. <laughs> Uh, cut his butthole open and get it out exactly (laughs) like oh okay thanks yeah like you hate your neighbor so you just go down to the hospital and you're like why is she in here like oh well she got gonorrhea pretty bad in her throat so we're treating that okay so these medications that he received we can see so even though we don't know what he was diagnosed with if anything we know that he was given one oxygen tank And two medications. One medication is called aramine, which is a medication used to increase low blood pressure. So normally when people are going in for surgery um, in old timey times, I don't know if they still use it. So it gives you high blood pressure? It it raises your blood pressure to be normal. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Then what was the other... What was the other medication? The other medication gives us an even greater insight into what he was probably admitted for, and that is the medication Thorazine. Have you ever heard of Thorazine? Mm Mm-mm. 
So it's an antipsychotic typically used to treat mental illness or behavioral disorders such as schizophrenia and the manic phase of bipolar disorder, among many other conditions. Those are not the only two. That's just like when you Google this medicine, those are the two that immediately pop up. So some type of mental health crisis. Right. Right. Well, it's weird because like so one of them, if it's supposed to treat the the manic side of bipolarism, you would assume that he would be like really amped up. Right. Mm-hmm. But then the oxygen and keep raising the blood pressure. Great point. Would be a sign of someone who's not like breathing enough. Maybe he was hyperventilating. I don't know. I mean, we can speculate all day. I will say that the oxygen tank was given to him on the first day he was admitted. Okay. Remember there? Remember, he was there for about eight days. Right. And then that's towards, a long time. Yeah. And then towards the end, he was given that antipsychotic. Okay. So maybe when he first came in, he was ha- it, he was presenting as if he was having some sort of physical ailment. Right. And then as time went on and they stabilized him, they realized mm-hmm. he was also suffering from delusions right. or hallucinations. Okay. I mean, who knows? Yeah. But either way, pretty serious. Yeah, right? not I mean, a fun time to be in the no, hospital for eight days. Absolutely not. And eight days in a hospital is pretty serious anyway. It's equivalent to like 12 years outside of the hospital. Yeah. Like you t- age a lot in there. And also, I mean, obviously modern hospitals a lot different than in the 50s. But now, like, you give birth and they kick you out within right. a couple hours. Get the fuck out. Yeah. So it's pretty crazy that he was there for that long. Yeah. And neighbors would also later report that Lillian had told them that the doctor had suffered, quote, a couple of coronaries, which is an expression that generally refers to blocked arteries in the heart and or maybe a heart attack. But it's unclear if this was just a cover up story for Dr. Perelson's mental health troubles or if he also suffered from heart issues in addition to mental health Mm. issues. We're not really sure. Either way, the troubles only seem to grow for the Perelsons. In 1959, Judy wrote a letter to her aunt regarding this fact. In part, the letter reads, quote, My family are on the merry-go-round again. Same problems, same worries, only tenfold. My parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially. Hmm. Despite the financial problems, Harold and Lillian continue to spend money as if nothing were wrong. Besides their fancy new mansion, Lillian often went on expensive shopping trips, and Harold even reportedly bought Judy a brand new sports car in 1958. Meanwhile, Harold began to spiral into a depression. Besides multiple hospital stays, neighbors reported that in the summer of 1959, he could be seen reading dark novels in lieu of his usual medical journals, and that they could often see from their windows in their houses that the light was on in his study basically 24 hours a day. So he's normally like this kind, soft-spoken kind right. of serious, like he's a professor. Right. He's an injection specialist. Yeah. He works on, in surgery in the cardiology department. Yeah. So he's normally all about business. They can see him on his front porch, like reading medical right. journals and then getting to bed at a normal hour because he has a serious job that he needs to sleep for. Right. But now he's up at all hours. He's ha- like extravagant gifts for his wife, mm-hmm. even though they're suffering financially. And just go into the hospital for eight days for maybe a heart attack or a mental breakdown. But either way, those are both signs that you're having a lot of stress in your life. Exactly. Yeah. And also, I just think it's funny that people noted that instead of reading his dark medical novels. journals, he's just like reading these dark works of fiction up in his study at right. three in the morning. Like, like on the third book of Twilight. Exactly. And like yes. something is wrong something with this is, man. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally. And uh, people also reported that he was acting sort of agitated and standoffish around the time so now we arrive at the main event 
December of 1959. Okay. With the holidays fast approaching, Lillian Perelson had begun to decorate her home for Christmas. Mm-hmm. A brightly lit tree could be seen in one of the windows of the home from the street below. Garlands and mistletoe strung from archways and down the banisters. Mm-hmm. The evening of December 6, 1959, Lillian had reportedly fixed a dinner of steamed green beans for her family before changing into her nightgown and retiring for the night in the marital bed she shared with her husband, Harold. Judy, whose room was connected to her parents via a Jack and Jill bathroom, followed suit shortly after, also climbing into bed for the evening. Next, Debbie and Joel were put to bed by Harold, with Harold being the last person in the family to retire for the evening. It is unknown whether or not Harold ever actually went to sleep that night, but at approximately 4.30 in the morning on December 7, 1959, he towered above Lillian, gazing down at her blankly in the dark room as she slept. What? A ball-peen hammer in his <gasps> hand. No! Raising his arm slowly above his head, he brought it down with all of his might, crushing in her skull as he did so. He continued to hammer his wife. Lillian never even had a chance to scream as blood filled her lungs, and the coroner's report would show that she died of asphyxiation face down on her bed, choking on her own blood. Stopping for a moment to wipe his brow, Harold next made his way through the adjoining bathroom into his daughter, Judy's bedroom. No. He again raised the hammer high above his head as his daughter slept and brought it crashing down on her skull as well. But this time his aim was off just a hair, and rather than caving in her skull as he had done to his wife, Judy sustained only a glancing blow, still serious but not deadly. Judy let out a blood-curdling scream as the blow awoke her from her slumber. All she could see was her father, covered in blood, standing above her with a hammer. His eyes appeared dark and inhuman, as if there was nobody home. Lay still, her father said calmly. Keep quiet. But Judy could not keep quiet. Continuing to scream at the top of her lungs, she bolted past her father, running for her life towards the stairs that would lead her down to the first floor and out the front door. According to journalist Jeff Maish, who interviewed a Perelson neighbor, Sherry Lewis, for an article in 2015, quote, Sherry Lewis can still remember the screams. She had a young friend, Shelley, visiting for a sleepover. Shelley panicked. At first, it sounded like a wild animal screaming, Dr. Lewis says, and then she could clearly hear the voice she knew to be Judy's. Don't kill me. Don't kill me, Dad. Inside her bedroom, Judy somehow escaped her father, whose hands were covered in blood, as was his shoulder. What about her sister? Judy ran into her parents' bedroom. There she saw the full horror of her father's work. Judy sprinted down the hallway and found the spiral staircase. She ran out the front door, taking deep breaths of cold night air. The smiling gargoyle in the fountain watched as she flew down the concrete steps. She banged desperately on the door of the Lewis home. Getting no answer, she began hammering on the French windows next to the front door, smearing them with blood. Upstairs, Sherry and Shelley were frozen in fear. Judy tried another neighbor, Marshall Ross, who finally opened his door. Together, they called the police. Back in the Perelson home, the two younger children had awoken to the sound of their sister's screams. Go back to bed. This is only a nightmare, Harold Perelson told 11-year-old Debbie. Then he strode away, dripping blood onto the floor. 
Meanwhile, Marshall Ross was climbing the steps to the Perelson home. He found Debbie and 13-year-old Joel waiting on the first floor. Then he climbed the stairs and came face to face with the doctor. Go on home, Harold told him, according to the coroner's report. Don't bother me. Ross watched the doctor walk into a bathroom. Harold found the drawers where he kept his medicines and pulled them open. Blood smeared everywhere. He pulled out bottles and boxes of pills, opened the lids. He tore apart two capsules of nem Nembutal, a barbiturate, and turned on the taps, mixing the yellow powder with water in the wash basin. Nembutal is known as, quote, death in a bottle, a favorite of suicide seekers hoping for a quick death. It killed Judy Garland. It tasted bitter. To be certain of his fate, the doctor then swallowed around 31 small white pills, believed to be either codeine or a powerful tranquilizer. Then he turned back into a bedroom. The last Marshall Ross saw, the doctor lay down on a bed and waited for the drugs to work. It took 15 minutes for the police cars to climb the hill from the Hollywood station. At 5.15 a.m., LAPD detectives Anderson and Pozo dashed up the concrete stairs of the home. By the time they found the doctor, he was on the floor. His head lay on a pillow covered in his daughter's blood, the hammer still in his hand. He was only just breathing and would be dead before the ambulance even arrived. The police gathered the rest of the pills and laid them on a dresser in his room. There they discovered, on his nightstand, next to Perelson's side of the bed, a copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy. It was open to Canto One, which reads, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a dark forest, for the straightforward path had been lost. Judy was immediately transported to West Valley Community Hospital, reportedly suffering from a possible skull fracture inflicted upon her by her own father. Soon after the murders of both of their parents, court records show that Lillian's sister, Gertrude Salen, petitioned the courts for guardianship of the two minor Perelson children and, according to rumors, all of them promptly moved to the East Coast, the children all changing their names in an attempt to move on and begin healing from the gruesome event. In a blogspot post by Jennifer Clay for My LA Bucket List, Jennifer stated that she had received an email from someone claiming to be a member of the Perelson family. In Jeff Mesh's article for Medium, he writes that the person claiming to be related to the Perelsons wrote the following to Jennifer Clay. Quote, It is said that Judy had changed her name like 10,000 times over the years, and that her brother moved to Israel, became Hasidic, and won't talk to anyone. This tragic tale is horrifying enough just the way it is, but what has sparked both intrigue and urban legends in recent years involves what became of the house following the murders. Mm-hmm. When Lillian and Harold died and the Perelson children moved away, the house was left abandoned, with the crime scene still intact. The Perelson children took nothing from the home, and all the furniture, clothing, food, prescription pills, and even Dr. Perelson's medical files on his patients were all left inside the home, preserved as a sort of time capsule. Yeah, like a nineteen, like 1950s haunted doctor house. Yes, and specks of blood still stained the walls and the floors, and according to some accounts, Christmas decorations were still hung from the walls. In 1960, just one year after the murders, the home was sold in a probate sale, as is, to a Los Angeles couple named Julian and Amelia Enriquez. According to court records obtained by the seven-part documentary podcast called The Los Feliz Murder Mansion, 
The home was sold with all of its personal belongings of the Perelsons included as part of the sale. No cleanup included. Now, Natalia, I have a question for you. If you had just purchased a mansion where the walls and floors had blood spatter and old food and clothes were left behind by the previous occupants, what would you do? Clean it. Yes. I think any sane person would likely send in a cleaning crew to dispose of these old belongings and give the home a thorough cleaning. Right. Right. Well, the Enriquez's apparently chose not to do this. What are they going to do? <laughs> and in fact, they ended up never actually living in the house. Instead, they owned it until their deaths in the 1990s and used the enormous mansion as a storage unit. So instead of living in it or cleaning it up or reselling it, they just used it as a place to store their own garbage and belongings, meaning that the home sat for another 30 years after the murders, unused and Ew. untouched, holding a mixture of Perelson belongings and Enriquez belongings. When Amelia Enriquez died in 1994, her son Rudy, who lived in Washington Heights, inherited the house. Rudy, too, chose not to move into the home. Yeah, because they know it's haunted. Instead, he continued to store old belongings there and even moved his two cats into the home without him. He would reportedly stop by on occasion to give food and water to the cats, but never stayed there overnight. Why? In a quote to the Los Angeles Times in 2009, Rudy was quoted as saying, I don't know that I even want to live there or stay there. When asked by reporter Bob Poole if he knew about the rumors of ghosts on his property, Enriquez would only cryptically say, tell people to say their prayers every morning and every evening and they'll be okay. What? Oh my God. <laughs> what? Like, Why would he even leave his cats there? Like, that's odd. To buy a really expensive mansion and then never move into it, never flip it, and use it as a storage <sighs> well, unit. Well, if we believe that this is some sort of, like, hell house, though, maybe it calls you to do that. And it's like, yeah, leave your stuff here. That's true. Maybe so. Leave we those cats here. Yeah. Isn't there, like, a folklore belief that cats, like, are right. okay with the paranormal? Yeah. Right? Like, they can sense it. and They're like, related to it. Yes. When Rudy died in 2015, he left no children and no heirs to the home, leaving it in limbo yet again. According to CBS, in 2016, leading civil rights attorney and women's rights ag advocate Lisa Bloom, also known for being Gloria Allred's daughter, and her husband Braden Pollock bought the place. CBS News spoke to Lisa Bloom and Braden Pollock for an article about the house. The couple gave the following statements to the press. I know there was this awful tragedy one day in the 1950s, she said, but I don't hold that against the home. The couple told CBS News that they had plans to remodel. The interior was even taken down to the studs. But after they got pushback from the city on their expansion plans, they decided to put the house back on the market. According to Zillow, the home last sold on December 10, 2020 for $2.3 million, despite Zillow estimating the mansion's worth at $4.8 million. So it so sold shows for about you, half of it. Yeah, that yeah. shows you how haunted it is because in L.A. right now, you can't buy a house for less than it's worth. They're like all way marked up. Exactly. So... As you said, this close this shows that the house is haunted. So we need to talk. I about like to how she's like, oh yeah, we uh we just decided that because we couldn't expand the way we wanted to, so we're selling it. And it's like Sh that bitch got haunted. Exactly, that yeah. bitch walked into that house thinking she was getting a sweet deal, yeah, and then immediately saw a ghost and fucking right. left. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about the hauntings. According to the article by Jeff Mesh that we've been quoting throughout this episode, quote. A neighbor, Cherie Watterson, told the Times that a friend of hers tried one night to explore the mansion in what she described as a Nancy Drew moment. The woman snuck in through a back door but didn't get far before the burglar alarm sounded. 
Soon, her hands were throbbing painfully. She'd been bitten by a black widow. There was a red streak going up her arm towards her heart, and she had to go to the doctor, said Watterson. Two nights later, the alarm kept going off at my house on my back door, despite nobody being there. It was like the ghost had followed us home. Uh. In an article for LA Weekly, Brian Clune described some of the paranormal activity ghost hunters claim to have witnessed at the murder mansion. Quote, the ghost hunters have reported hearing the sounds of a woman calling out, no, in a terrified voice, followed by her frantic screaming and then silence. What? This silence is then shortly followed by a low moan of a male who sounds as if he is in distress. This moaning goes on for a short while until all is again silent. The ghost hunters also tell of seeing the face of a woman staring at them through one of the upstairs windows. What? She will gaze at them for a few minutes and then simply vanish from sight. Many have photographed this apparition, but when they get home and download the photos onto their computers or get their film developed, there's nobody in any of the frames. Hmm. And Natalia, I actually know someone who lives in the Los Feliz neighborhood just down the street from the murder mansion. And I had her send me a soundbite about the home, which I'm going to play for you now. Yes. Hi, Alyssa, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Hi. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. So before we get started with the questions, I wanted to ask you, do you want me to bleep out your name so that you can remain anonymous? Or are you okay with your name being on this episode? I get full permission for my name being included in the episode. So Alyssa, you live in the neighborhood of Los Feliz, correct? Yes. And about how long have you lived there? I'm going on three years. And am I correct in understanding that you live pretty close to the murder mansion? I live less than like half a mile. It's literally like around the corner and like up the hill. So yeah, it's like a street over state from me, basically. So you can't see it from your house, but if you walk down your street, you can see it. Is that right? Yes. So because there's like a lot of trees. I live on a mountain in Griffith Park. And so it's like the ground is very um like easily leveled, I guess you could say. And so um, I can't see it from my house, but like it's literally right on the other side of the of the next street. How did you first come to find out about the murder mansion? So it was so funny. I used to take acting classes and I was in a group class. And one of the girls in my class had mentioned that she went and had a picnic at the Los Feliz murder mansion. And I was like, what is that? And this was like several years ago, back in like probably 2014. And um, so she like kind of gave me like a brief description about it. And I was so fascinated and one day I was driving to um, California Donuts because I love donuts. <laughs> and um, and I was like, I was living in Ventura at that time. And so I was like, oh, I'm in the neighborhood. Like I just drove down here for donuts. Why don't I just go explore? And I was like, I wonder where that murder mansion is. And so I drove over here. And then like several years later, I ended up living right around the corner from it, which was so weird. So when you visited the house for the first time did you get any sort of like weird vibe off of the house or did you see anything strange when you were there yes like you can just when you're going up the hill like toward the house you can almost feel like a complete shift in energy it's very bizarre and so when I first went there they didn't have a gate around it so people could really just walk up but like I'm always scared of being in trouble so I was too scared to walk up to the house even though I was able to and um, but I had like seen all the pictures and stuff online and like how it looked and it was 
you could still see that like I think the Christmas tree was still in there the very first time I saw the house it's very creepy yes so wait your friend had a picnic in the backyard of the murder mansion in the front yard yes like um so if you go up the the, the steps and everything um you can see like there's like a big plot of grass and everything and like people just go and hang out it was like a day adventure they just go and hang out at the murder mansion and look in the windows and see if they can see a ghost or something and did your friend see like say that she he or she like saw anything or felt anything um I don't remember because like I had no idea about it and so I was just kind of like more like intrigued about the story itself I don't remember what she had said about the house I think they just went for just a day picnic you know at a haunted house so when I was texting you kind of talking chatting with you about this before I called you had said something to me that I thought was really interesting which is that you feel like the house kind of gives off an angry energy and I was wondering if you could expand upon that a little bit yes absolutely so I've had many experiences with like paranormal things in my my life and everything as it started around when I was eight years old and um so I've very always been very susceptible to like that kind of thing and I, when I go on my regular neighborhood walks to just go clear my head or whatever, I always like just walk by that house on purpose. Cause even though that street dead ends, like I'm just always inclined to like go look at it and just see if I feel something. And every time I always have the exact same feeling, I feel like nervous. I feel like I'm being watched and I feel like just mad when I look at the house, it's very weird. And so, um, and I don't know if I, it's like if I'm actually mirrored or mad or angry or if I'm just picking up on like something else there, like another entity that's like angry and pissed off, which I would be too considering the circumstances, you know? Well, and so you just said that you're susceptible or you believe that you might be sensitive to the paranormal. Have you noticed any strange like paranormal or ghostly happenings at any other houses in the Los Feliz neighborhood? Maybe the one that you live at currently? Yes, I absolutely have a ghost here and I can sense that it's a female energy and she's not mean, but she is mischievous. And I think it's just, she originally just wanted me to know that she was here. And so the first time it happened when I moved into the house in May of 2019, it was probably around like the late summer. I want to say around August, September. And I was home alone at the time and I was doing dishes and there's an island in my kitchen to set it up for you. And so my back was facing the island and the glass door and that's where the trash can is and all of a sudden while I'm scrubbing dishes I hear a like a plastic drop and I was like what the heck is that and so I walk over and my trash can lid had been lifted up and thrown on the ground and like it latched onto the trash can so it's not like it could have slid off like it had a lift around the edges and so like you had to physically lift it up to remove it and it was like somebody had just picked it up and chucked it on the ground it was very bizarre and so I was kind of like, okay, that's odd. And then like, that's the first time I noticed it. And then I started like randomly hearing paper shuffling and stuff. And she always hangs out onto one side of the house toward more toward the, um, the garage side and sometimes in the kitchen, but mostly in like the back office on the garage side of the house, you can hear her shuffling things around or like moving stuff. But like, I, I go in there and like, I don't see anything moved. And um, it's so funny because a couple weeks ago I was home alone again and I swear, I was so convinced somebody was in my house. There was like so much movement happening. And there are animals because I do live in a park. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of nature and everything. And I have ring cameras all throughout the outside of my house. So I was looking and I'm like, I don't see anybody. But I kid you not, I was laying in bed. I had the door locked. And I, you know, you can just hear like 
people moving, even if they're not like stomping, you can just hear like movement. And so it sounded as if somebody walked over to my bedroom door and just stopped. Like, oh my God. Yeah. So I'm like freaking out. And I called my boyfriend who's like out of town and it was like almost 4am and thank God he was up. And so I call him and I'm like, someone's in the house. And I'm like climbing out the bathroom window in the bedroom. And I'm like, and I always have this plan because I'm always just scared that like, I don't know. It's like LA's weird, you know, there's weird people and stuff. So like, I always have like a plan in my head of like, if I have to get out of the house this way, like this is the way I'll go. So I like executed my plan and I like climb out the bathroom window. I go through the gate. I like climb over the fence to get to my car. And, um, and then I'm like sitting in my car waiting to like go. And, um, but nobody was in my house. And then like, so I slept in my car for like an hour because I was so scared. And then um, I finally was like, okay, it's freezing now. And so I try to like go back in and I like, go back to the house the same way I got out and um so I'm like just climbing around and I'm like I wonder what people would think right now if they saw me and so I like start walking on the parameters of my house and everything and I'm like looking at all the windows and nobody was there like it was completely fine and I looked at all my cameras there was no activity so it's very weird so do, do you feel like the whole neighborhood of Los Feliz has something going on like some sort of otherworldly energy happening there yes well the neighborhood itself is so old so like a lot of the houses they're so beautiful and a lot of them have been redone but a lot of these were built like a very long time ago like some of them are very old Spanish style homes from like the 1920s and stuff but a lot of people do maintain the neighborhood very well and like update their houses because it's like a nicer neighborhood you know and um so there's that house, the murder mansion. There's like my house, which I know is haunted. Um, the house across the street gives off a weird vibe. I call it like a mini Hogwarts because it's like all brick and it looks like a castle and everything, but it's very beautiful. <laughs> but I'm like, I just look at it and I'm like, I know that house is haunted. And the funny thing is, is that the people just bought it and moved in like a little bit less or maybe about a year ago. And I heard they're already moving again. So I'm like, I bet it's because it's haunted. And, um, and another thing, which I thought was very interesting is I love like crime stuff and I worked in like mental health and everything. So like, I've always been fascinated by like, why do serial killers, you know, do the things that they do and everything. So I've always been like intrigued by Charles Manson stories, not that I glorify him, but I'm like, you know, like what made this guy the way he was. And so when I was going on like threads and stuff and reading different information about the murder mansion house, I had come across an article and if I can find it again, I will absolutely send it to you. But I guess Charles Manson and his whole crew had actually scoped out the house that was next door to Murder Mansion. And they were just kind of like observing it, like thinking that they were going to murder the family that was there. But they saw that there were little kids playing outside. And so they ended up changing their mind and they didn't end up killing anyone. That's that's insane. I feel like that's too many bad things to happen in one neighborhood for it to be a coincidence. Get ready. okay? so so then we also have the Blade Runner house in the neighborhood which it's very beautifully done. There was a, an architect named Frank Lloyd Wright, I believe. And he did, he did several of the houses in this neighborhood. And so the Blade Runner house, it just has a very eerie setup to it. And it just feels like, I don't, I don't want to say demonic or satanic, but like, it just gives off a weird vibe. I don't know. And so whenever I walk by that house on the route too, like I have to go past the witch house, which literally has like black stars painted on the sidewalk and like on the door. And it looks like this whimsically witch house. And um, yeah, there's so much weird stuff. And also there's another house in the neighborhood that they suspect that the Black Dahlia was actually murdered in. And that's just like a street over from me as well. Oh my God. I did not come across that in my research. So thank thank you for telling me about that. That just adds like a whole nother layer of haunted to this whole area. Yes. And also we have another house 
around the, like on the other side, because my neighborhood's very big, but like on another street on the other side of my house, we have a cult house. And I don't know if the cult is still there or what, but there was just like a cult and they had a restaurant on sunset and um, yeah, just like they had like over 50 something babies delivered in this house and stuff. And they all like worship this one man. Oh my so, God. So this neighborhood is obviously pretty affluent. There's a lot of people who are celebrities that live in your neighborhood. There's a lot of people from prominent families that live in your neighborhood. And I'm just kind of curious, what is the dynamic amongst all of the neighbors? Do people socialize with each other or do they kind of keep to themselves? No, I almost never socialize with any of my neighbors. And the people that I do socialize with, if I go on walks and stuff, it's usually people who don't live in the neighborhood because they just, people love to walk up to Griffith Park and stuff. But um, yeah, there are a lot of celebrities who either still live or have lived. I know Vanessa Hudgens is my neighbor. She lives a couple houses over or like streets over. So, and then Leonardo DiCaprio has bought in a house. Katy Perry lived over here. Like, so there's been, it's, it's like a very big attractive area. It's almost like a, it's almost like its own little mini Hollywood and like its own little tucked away pocket, I guess you could say. And like, so, yeah, like a lot of stars like come over here, like producers and everything, but everyone kind of keeps to themselves. Yeah. So throughout the three-ish years that you've lived in this house and walked through the neighborhood, have you ever seen anyone living inside the murder mansion or has it always been vacant as long as you've been around? It has always been vacant, but as far as I'm concerned, but I have seen the cars in the driveway a couple times because I know like they've switched owners and they've had realtors come and then like they're actually redoing the house now. So I think there's been more activity of people, but, um, and I think they might've already resold it, but I, I don't remember completely, but yeah, there's like, it's been vacant for a long time, but just recently it started having more people come. And I guess to kind of like close it out, is there anything else you want to say about the murder mansion or the neighborhood of Los Feliz? Yeah, I just, I really love the neighborhood and I'm okay with the paranormal stuff. And of course the story of the family is tragic and stuff, but it's a beautiful home. And I hope that like, you know, the memory it has can be made into something more beautiful and a nice family goes in there and And the last thing I want to talk about for this episode was brought to my attention by the seven-part documentary podcast series by Cloudy Day Pictures called The Los Feliz Murder Mansion. And in that podcast, the host Stacy, who I also talked to for this episode, um, says something really interesting that I'd never heard before. Natalia, did you know that the whole neighborhood of Los Feliz is allegedly cursed? No. Why? So I'm going to play for you right now my interview with Stacy from the podcast, The Los Feliz Murder Mansion, which I highly recommend. She is also an indie podcaster, and she produced this entire series by herself over the course of six years. Amazing. So let's listen to what she has to say. Hi. Hi, Stacy. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I can hear you. I can. Um, let's see if I can see you. Yes. Okay. Now I can see you. Yay. Right. Thank Yay. you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, I listened to your podcast. So well done. Congratulations. Thank so, you. That's, um, we do like short form. So this episode that we did on the Los Feliz Murder Mansion is about an hour. Um, and so I was just so impressed when I was going through trying to find different sources for the story 
um, I came across your podcast and I was like, oh my God, six hours on this. This is like heaven. I know. <laughs> I a lot of content. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. Um, to anyone who is listening out there right now to this interview, you can go listen to the full six. It's about six hours, right, Stacey? Yeah, it's like five and a half hours, seven episodes. Seven episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to anywhere where you listen to podcasts, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, um, Spotify, wherever you guys enjoy listening to your podcasts, and just search Los Feliz Murder Mansion, and it's the number one thing that pops up. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, Stacy, I wanted to kind of start with having you introduce yourself to our audience and maybe explain a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in this story. Okay. Um, I am a TV editor. I edit HGTV shows. That's what I do in my day, daytime. Um, and I always wanted to make documentary films. I went to film school. Um, and me and my best friend, she's a director of photography. Um, we wanted to make a documentary. We've made a couple before. And um, we had heard about this house, the Los Feliz Murder Mansion. And started looking into it, investigating it, and decided let's make this into a documentary. Um, And then as you know, it ended up turning into a podcast um, because I felt like that was just a better way to tell the story. Um, So even though we had that filmmaking documentary background um, and we did shoot all this footage, all these interviews, um, it felt better for me to just tell the story and kind of take listeners on like a wild ride. Um, And and, it definitely uh, was a wild ride. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because after seven years, we investigated this house for seven years. We uncovered a lot. We talked to a lot of people um, and we basically uncovered everything and kind of solved all the little mysteries um, about this house. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I And I definitely do want to tell everyone to please, I just want to reemphasize, go check out that podcast because as I said, our episode on this topic is about an hour long. And because we are a paranormal podcast, We like to focus on, you know, the urban legend side of things or maybe um, the more like fun, spooky side of things. And so we're we do get into the, you know, the basic facts surrounding the house, but definitely did not do the investigative journalism work that you did. And so anyone who's interested in learning what this house is really about needs to check out that podcast. For today's episode, we are focusing on the paranormal side. So I kind of wanted to start. I thought it was very, very interesting. You talked a little bit about something called the curse of Griffith Park or the curse of Los Feliz. And I had never actually heard of that before. And I was wondering if you could give maybe a brief synopsis to our listeners about what that curse is all about. Yeah, so the Los Feliz Rancho is a giant parcel of land. California, Southern California was broken up into these old ranchos that were land concessions from uh, the government of Spain. And Don Antonio Feliz uh, was given this parcel of land. Um, And ultimately what ended up happening um, is his niece, um, Petronila, she put a curse on the land because she was supposed to inherit this property. And some shady characters kind of came in um, uh, when her uncle was dying and they sort of took the land away from her. Um, And so then she was like, I'm going to put a curse on this land. You know, all the crops are going to die. No cattle can be here. You know, this land will be, won't be fruitful to anyone. And the people that own the land are going to die. So anyways, that's how the legend goes. Um, There's this old curse. Um, And so then over the years, bad things have happened 
at the Rancho. Griffith Park is on the property of the Los Feliz Rancho. So is the Hollywood sign, all these kind of iconic um, LA spots. Um, so owners of the Rancho did die untimely deaths. Um, crops died. Um, Griffith J. Griffith was an owner of the land at one point, And uh, he had an attempt on his life that he survived. Um, but then he also shot his wife in the face in 1903. And she survived and testified against him in court. And he went to prison for two years. Um, and the city wanted nothing to do with him. And it wasn't until he, long after he had died that they finally built the observatory and kind of developed Griffith Park. Um, other things that happened at the Hollywood sign, an actress named Peg Entwistle, she committed suicide by jumping off the Hollywood sign, I believe in the 1930s. Um, 1933, there was one of the worst um, firefighter like tragedies that happened. There was a wildfire in Griffith Park and um, I think it was 29 firefighters died, really awful tragedy. So there's a lot of the ghost stories about Los Feliz and the Los Feliz Rancho um, and people, want to trace it back to this original curse um, by Petronila, who, you know, was so upset that she didn't get the land that was rightfully hers. Right. And can I ask, what is your opinion uh, or what are your views on the paranormal? Would you consider yourself somewhat of a believer, somewhat of a skeptic? Do you Because it's a spectrum, right? Some people are like, I believe literally everything. You know, I believe in mermaids. I believe in aliens. I believe in any ghost you can think of. And then other people are like, absolutely not. All of that is hokey. And then a lot of people fall in the middle. So I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on this curse and the paranormal in general? Well, I'm very pragmatic and I, I like logic. So I don't know. I like a ghost story that's solved by saying like, oh, here's this actual real reason why this was happening. Right. You know, there wasn't my house, there was a gas leak and that's what was <laughs> causing me to be sick or whatever. Um, but I do believe in the power of your mind and kind of where that can take you. I'm definitely afraid of the dark, like legitimately afraid of the dark. And that's just me being afraid of the unknown. Right. Um, if that's you know, I don't necessarily believe in ghosts of the paranormal, but I think it is really powerful what we can kind of psych ourselves up to believe. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you know, that's why I wanted to investigate this house because I felt like as that very pragmatic person, I was like, there have to be real solid answers to all the crazy things surrounding this house. It can't just be a ghost right. that's haunting this there's a curse and that's why nobody can, you know, nobody can ever renovate this house. No one has lived there in over 60 years. Um, but I will say there is, and I talk about this in the podcast, um, the house still is not lived in and has not been renovated. And there kind of is a case for there being a curse because really why, why has a house like this sat vacant for so many decades? It really is sort of unreal. And when right. you listen to the whole story, it'll be like, yeah, it sounds like there's something up with this property. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think I'm kind of in the middle, but I'm more the pragmatic side, I would say. Right. Well, and I was going to say, I mean, at the very least, I think you uncovered so many interesting parallels that kind of make you sit back and go, wait a minute. We started with this curse where someone who was supposed to inherit the house didn't get or supposed to inherit this land didn't get to inherit this land. And we move forward and end up seeing a lot of striking parallels to that story. And I was wondering if you could speak on that a little bit. Yeah. So later on in the house's history, um, Hazel Schumacher, she was the adopted daughter of the original builders of the house. Um, she was sort of put in the same position where she um, was supposed to inherit this property, but she ran off and got married without the permission of her family. And so we uncovered all these court documents where 
they um, kept the estate from her because she got married without um, getting permission. So it, I was, as we were uncovering this, I was like, this feels eerily similar to the curse of Petronilla. Um, so yeah, and there are a lot of little parallels like that, um, even down to Harold Perlson, who is the man who killed his wife and then killed himself. Um, his name's Harold, and then the original builder of the house, his name is Harry. There's just all kinds of like little things like that where it just, right. parallels are kind of, um, they are a little creepy, <laughs> I would say. And I and I will say, because I, um, I did not grow up in Los Angeles, but I moved to Los Angeles when I was 18 and have been here ever since. And I had heard of this, you know, supposed cursed Los Feliz murder mansion. And I always kind of thought it was BS. And so it's interesting, like getting to know the story and then listening to your podcast. I would say the average person who knows that urban legend, because it's very popular in L.A., doesn't know about all these little parallels. And so it was just so interesting that the further you were investigating into this house, the more interesting sort of synchronicities, maybe we'll say, that pop up. And you're like, wow, maybe there is something here because everyone that's been spreading this urban legend didn't know about all of these interesting things. Um, And something else that the urban legend has done in L.A. is cause people to want to go to the house to want to look at the house, to want to see what it's all about, see if they can feel, you know, a vibe or see something interesting. And it's also caused a lot of people to do what you referred to in the podcast as urban exploring or be urban explorers of the property. And I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners what an urban explorer is. Yeah. So an urban explorer, that was a term I had never heard before. This is a term that these particular people give to themselves, which is Basically, they just, I mean, whether it's breaking and entering or trying to find ways to sneak into properties that are abandoned or locations that are haunted, abandoned, what have you. Um, And tons of people um, have gone into this particular house. And these same people go into other locations like, you know, there's an old like Nazi camp in Santa Monica. Oh, my God. They abandoned Griffith Park. There's all kinds of crazy, like abandoned malls and all kinds of crazy places. And they go in, they take pictures and they kind of explore. Um, And sometimes people would take items from the house. Um, Not everyone would do that, but um, the murder mansion was so full of stuff that I think people felt kind of like, oh, I'll just grab something because there's tons of stuff in this house. Right. Um, So yeah, but these urban explorers, that's kind of like, and then they post it on blogs Um, And they share their photos with each other as like this community of people that want to see abandoned spaces. And some people like we interviewed um, Joel, who's an urban explorer. He like wants to be scared, like legitimately, I'm going to go to this place because I want something to scare me. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, they're kind of like adventurous people. And we felt like we had to speak to them because they went into the house when we we never went in when all of the belongings were still in the house. Um, I always made sure that we were invited when we went, we had a filming permit and could go in with permission. Um, so to speak to these people who got to see the house before, cause now it's cleared out um, because their impression of the house is so much different than if you go now, it's all emptied out. Um, when you're not seeing all those personal belongings, it's a completely different vibe. So we felt it very important to hear their story, to hear what it was like, to be in the house when it was like that. And can you speak on some of the objects that different urban explorers you talked to came across over the over their time exploring the mansion? 
Yeah, there was lots of stuff inside this house, lots of clothes, shoes, um, vinyl records, Playboy magazines, tons of them. Um, and, you know, little things like dishes and um, some signs that somebody was living there, but signs that somebody wasn't living there. There was, you know, furniture, 1950s furniture. That's the big thing. 1950s furniture that's just sitting there as if, you know, a 1950s family just picked up and left. Right. Um, but then like newer things like Life magazine from the 80s or, um uh, it's sort of kind of like a mish, mishmash of items that leaves you a little bit confused about what era all this stuff is actually from. Um, and things that indicate that they belong to the Enriquez family who owned the property after the murder-suicide. And some items that belong to the the tragic family, the Pearlsons, um, including patient files from this doctor who killed his wife and killed himself. Um, so a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, and just like a big hodgepodge of things. And something that I like thought was so impressive when I was listening to your podcast is you. So one of the urban explorers that you interviewed had come across, like you said, a sort of um, patient file or a reel of film of a patient that Dr. Perelson had been uh maybe in a clinical study or, or researching some topic and had filmed a patient. And we talked about on this episode with my co-host, we've already filmed that part of this episode. We talked about how one of the clinical trials or studies that he had published that you can still find on PubMed to this day was about familial paralysis, something like that. And so when I was listening to your podcast, that was the moment where I was like, oh, my God, it's proof that this guy was here and real because you had come across a reel of film footage of him researching that very topic. And I was wondering if you could talk about kind of how that came into your hands. Yeah, that actually was discovered by one of the urban explorers we interviewed, Caledonia. She was the one who found it because she went in the house and... Um, she grabbed it. It was in an old film canister. It's from 1947, I believe is the year. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy what's on there. It's black and white. There's no audio, but there are title cards and it's, it was made at USC. Um, and they were studying familial periodic paralysis, which is basically a state of sleep paralysis that they were trying to treat with, um, giving the patient like injections of potassium, um, to get their muscles moving again. So a young patient comes in, He's like fully nude, which is freaky also to see this old footage of like a 19 year old kid who's like totally paralyzed and fully nude. And then they start testing him to see that like, oh, he really is paralyzed. Um, and then they inject him with the potassium solution. Um, and then he's up and moving and putting on his pajamas again and then looks all happy and like, yay, I've been treated. Um, so it's crazy because, and it says, you know, from Dr. Harold Pearlson, it has his name on it. This was a moment that, you know, I didn't want to believe all the stuff about this house that you wouldn't have the items from a 1950s family still in this house. If you bought a house, you wouldn't leave stuff like that. But here it is right in front of me, physical proof. Um, and of course, I couldn't digitize it. It wouldn't fit on. It wouldn't go onto a projector because it was so brittle. So I scanned each frame hand by hand because I was that desperate. I had to see what was on this reel. And so after doing that, um, just seeing it was just so mind blowing um, and kind of freaky, honestly. <laughs> when you talk about what I'm pragmatic or believing, like, I don't know, I feel like if there's like film that's haunted or something, this could be that. Like, when you watch it, it's like really freaky to watch. Right. But yeah, it's wild. <laughs> and then another thing that 
the urban explorers had come across or that was part of the urban legend. And this is even something that I had heard when I was in college in L.A. is that, oh, there's still blood on some of the objects or there's still blood on the walls. There's, and I, again, as, you know, like a 19 year old hearing this urban legend or a 20 year old hearing this urban legend. I thought to myself, there's no way that's true. Like, that's a very, you know, juicy ghost story because that's what makes us think of ghosts. But I thought there's there's no way. You know, I'm sure people have purchased this home. What's the first thing you do when you purchase a home? You clean it out. And so I was interested to hear that you had, through interviewing some urban explorers, also come across people who claimed to have seen evidence that perhaps the crime scene had not been very well cleaned up. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, a lot of people would say that about this house, that there was still blood um, in the house after um, the murder-suicide. We spoke to um, a family friend of the Enriquez family, who he believed that there um, was blood still in the house when the Enriquez family bought the house. And I'm thinking that can't be possible because why would you, if you're a real estate agent trying to sell a house, I mean, all you have to do is just clean up the blood or get the bloody blankets or sheets or whatever out of the house. Like, why would you... That seems silly. Yeah. Um, and um, in fact, something I didn't mention in the podcast, um, Caledonia, the urban explorer, she had seen a sheet that she thought had blood on it. And there was a picture of it. Um, and it's debatable whether or not it's blood. It just looks like a big orange stain. It could be like old, like a water stain. The house was leaking a lot. There are also pictures of lots of pots and bowls out um, where it appeared to be leaking. And there's like kind of like a, a like a kind of like a, not a greenhouse, but anyways, there's a certain portion of the house where it looked like it was leaking from the roof. So is it water stains? Is it blood stains? Um, who knows, but I, there is also a light switch plate, um, that had the daughter's name on it. The daughter who survived, um, her father's attack. And there are spots on it that look like they could be blood stains. And so as I was researching this, I thought, exactly what you were thinking. Like, how could there be blood in the house? If there's literally a bloody sheet, just pick up the sheet, take it out of the house. However, there could be incidental blood spatter in certain areas. If you're leaving something in a house, like a light switch plate cover, um, I could see how, if you're not removing that, it might have gotten a little bit of blood on it and it just sat there and it just stayed. Right. And I mean, I believe that there are blood stains on it. Um, and it's just an incidental amount, right? It's not like you're walking in and you're seeing like the floor is covered in blood, you know? Um, but I think based on the history of this house and the fact that the Enriquez family really didn't fully move in and make it theirs, um, I actually think that's possible. That kind of blew my mind too. Cause I was like, no, there are a lot of things where I was like, I don't believe this. I'm not going to believe this. Um, and then as I was looking into it, it was like, you know what? that actually could be possible. <laughs> so. and, and speaking of the light switch plate, am yes. I correct in uh, in assuming or in believing that you actually have that light switch plate in your possession? I do. And it's in the podcast, we kind of go on this adventure where we find that it was, it was taken from the house um, and it ended up being gifted to me. It wasn't something I ever wanted. I still am just kind of like, I don't really care about having this in my house, but I do have it. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's a really crazy item to have the name of a victim um, on a light switch plate. And then what looks like, like I said, like blood spatter on it. Um, 
it's totally wild that that exists and is still around. And I and I wanted to ask you, as a pragmatic person and as someone who was not like seeking out um, an artifact from the home to take home, have do you feel anything when you look at that plate? Like, do you? I'm just so curious. Do you feel like an eerie feeling, or to you, is it just an object that just came into your possession? I don't get like a vibe from it. I'm not like freaked out by it. Um, I do walk past it a lot in my day to day. <laughs> and um, I, I think it's like a, it's a sad item. You know, you see it and you think about what happened in that house and it's really sad. Um, and I, I do think there's a lot of emotion there attached to it. Um, it doesn't freak me out or I don't feel like I'm cursed because I have this item, but I do sometimes if I sit and like, think about it, I do think that like, this, this item is, um, really heavy, really serious and sad, um, and a little bit freaky. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if I really felt like it was like bothering me or upsetting, I'd probably get rid of it in some way and throw it away or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it is very heavy. And I just, I kind of just try not to think about it because it is very heavy. And I, I know this story so well, I've spent so many years researching this house. Um, and, um, I know that, um, Judy, the daughter, she, um, you know, this, this whole incident, obviously it ruined her life, you know? Right. Um, and there's just a really heavy sadness there, I would say. And I, right. And I thought about that as well when that part came up in your podcast and I was thinking to myself, I would do the same thing that you did in that situation, which is you're handed this very heavy object. I, as someone who obviously on this podcast, we talk about the paranormal, we discuss it at length. We've interviewed people from different cultures that have different, you know, beliefs and folklore surrounding um, objects like this light switch plate. And I think to myself, you know, what would I do if I was in that situation and someone handed it to me? I feel like it would be disrespectful to throw it away. Right. I mean, that's a personal opinion that I have. And I really don't know what I would do with it because as you said, it's such a heavy object. But can you just toss something out that has that much significance and meaning? I don't think that I could. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's sort of this yeah. this conundrum, right? You want to acknowledge that this is a real tragedy that happened that had real victims. And it's not necessarily something voyeuristic that you just want to be like, oh, my God, look at what I have. Um, it's this memento of someone's worst day of their life. Right. But you also don't want to throw it out. It's this, it's this conundrum of how do you respect and acknowledge the real victims of this story? I I don't know. And I, I don't, how do you feel about it? How, how, is there any like insight that you have or how, how do you feel about that light switch plate or, or how it came into your possession? I, I feel like there's a sense of, i I also kind of want to protect it. Like I have it here and it just, I'm not doing anything with it. I'm not like showing it off. I'm right. not like proud that I have it. It's, it's just an item that I have that is sort of, it was just given to me. It has, like I said, a lot of sadness and emotion to it. Um, and I feel like in the hands of somebody else, it might be like, oh, I'm going to sell this on eBay or something, right. or let's put it in like a haunted museum or something. I feel like that would be not that I'm doing some honorable thing, but I just, I'm just, I'm just letting it sit there. And it just, it just is. Um, and I feel like there are a lot of things somebody else could do with it to kind of, um, uh, what's the word kind of like take advantage of it or, you know, 
make money from it or I don't know. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of letting it be. I've thought about like, oh, what if it went back in the house? But it's like, that doesn't belong. The house um, now is down to the studs. There's no walls or anything, you know? So it, it couldn't even really go back in that house because that house is going to be different. And yeah, so I'm just kind of, I'm just letting it be really. Yeah. I'm just letting it, letting it exist. It just exists here with me. And I think that's, that's all you can do. That's, you know, mm -hmm. because I thought about it as well while you were going through the whole journey, which is so insane of how you came into possession of the light switch <laughs> yeah. plate. So again, I want people to go listen to your podcast so they can hear the full story from start to finish. But as I was going through, you sort of take us on this journey with you of getting mm -hmm. that light switch plate. And when it came into your possession, it was just one of those moments where you're like, oh my God, this is real. This, totally. this is a real part of the urban legend that exists that we can point to and say this is a real object. And by the time you went into the murder mansion, um, it was not there, correct? It was. I never saw it in the house mm -hmm. as it was. It had been replaced right. with something. We knew something was up. And that's, we were, I mean, we were disappointed because we wanted to get footage of it. You know, we were there to film inside the house. And this is a big moment. The light switch plate is going to be here. We're going to get footage of it. And uh, it was gone. So <laughs> that, that was really disappointing. I was like, oh man, now we're never going to have footage of it. Right. Um, and it's crazy how it ended up because now it's like, well, I have it now. <laughs> um, so yeah. <laughs> so speaking of going into the house itself, so you were able to go in there, like you said, legally with a permit. So you weren't doing this sort of urban exploration that would probably be a little bit scarier, right? I think that's, yeah. <laughs> that has also helped perpetuate the urban legend because people were going into this dark, you know, home that's littered with artifacts from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. You went into it, as you said, kind of completely empty, right? Is that mm -hmm. correct? Yeah, totally. And, out. Mm -hmm. and when you were in the home, did you get any feelings of eeriness or any vibes or, or sort of scared? What was it a surreal experience? Could you talk about that a little? Yeah, when we we got there super early, we got there at like four in the morning so that we could get our shoot day started early. We wanted to get some night shots. So me and my producer, Wes, we got there early with the keys. So we're like opening the gate, like going into the house. Um, like I said, I'm afraid of the dark. So that like no matter what setting you put me in if I'm in like pure darkness I'm gonna be scared yeah. so I was scared of that you know just kind of like what if there's somebody in here or um the alarm was going off in the house and it wouldn't stop it didn't stop the entire time we were shooting that day I asked the owner I was like can you turn this off he's like I don't know how so there was just this alarm going off and that was kind of scary oh my gosh. um and you know we walked through the house it's super dark there's obviously no lights um there's no electricity or running water or anything um and it felt freaky but I will say that I did legitimately get scared in the um, up in the attic, which is like kind of like a third floor ballroom area. I went up there by myself because I wanted to get a time lapse of the sun rising in the famous like window that has the staircase in it. And you get that view from this ballroom on the third floor. So I went up there by myself and it was like pitch black. I'm like running up the stairs and I set up my phone like on a little tripod. And I, I was scared in that moment just because I was by myself in like a third floor ballroom. And there's all these closet doors. There's a lot of storage up there. So there are a lot of doors and it's kind of mm. like, what's behind these doors? Like, <laughs> even if it's like a rat or something, it's going right. to scare me. Well, um, well so, yeah. or an urban explorer, right? That would, that would be scary <laughs> if an urban explorer was hiding up there. 
Exactly. Exactly. There's that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It felt a little bit dangerous. Yeah. What if somebody's like up here? And in fact, when we were shooting in there, the, um, in the master bedroom where the murder, well, where the murder went down, um, there were a bunch of candles that had been lit. Um, so somebody, somebody had been there recently lighting candles, doing whatever. Um, so yeah, evidence that people are breaking in and, um, yeah, I will say that that's when I was scared, but then as the sun was coming up and then, you know, we have our team there shooting. And then later there was another another show that was shooting too. Um, it just felt like, well, here we are at this house and everybody wants to get footage of it. And I wasn't as scared. <laughs> right. So spending so many years of your life looking into this, I'm, I mean, I believe you, like six, six years-ish. Years. Mm-hmm. Has this story impacted you or shaped you in any way? I think so. I think I used to be really um, not into like horror and scary things because it just always scared me. But as I was looking into this house, I sort of got more into like true crime and that sort of stuff just because it's kind of like it's all about solving a mystery. Right. And that I am. I wanted to solve the mystery of this house. I really wanted to get down to the bottom of every single thing about this crazy house. And so in that, doing the investigation, um, I started getting more into true crime and, in, you know, kind of like realizing that like, I'm actually super into that sort of thing. Um, and also house history. Now I'm obsessed with houses. So if, you know, I ever go to somebody's house in LA, I'm like looking up their address, like with all my resources <laughs> that I have this person died here or like, oh, this house has no history or whatever. You know, I had a friend who bought a house and I looked up the history of her house. It was the house across the street had all this like drama that happened, like some kids thirties. And I pulled up all the newspaper articles. I was like, emailed it to her. Like, I hope this doesn't freak you out. But so now I'm obsessed with houses too. That's my other thing. I just think that it's, it's really cool that a house can have such crazy history especially in a city of like Los Angeles where it feels like we don't have history in Los Angeles but we actually do so it's always a little bit surprising you know that this hundred year old house um had all these crazy things happen there um so yeah it definitely kind of made me more of like I want to be like a little investigator now you know yeah well I think you Mm -hmm. are I think you were the first and probably only person to put in the work to figure out what this urban legend was all about I think most of us myself included hearing that story for the first time in college I think all of us just kind of thought oh that's spooky you know like oh that what a good ghost story to like tell at night and then you don't really think about it anymore And so it was just very, it was very satisfying. I will say a lot of the time on our show, we'll cover stories um, and we'll interview people who maybe think they've seen a ghost or we cover unsolved, you know, mysteries and we'll talk about them. And it's, it's not as satisfying when you don't have someone that's put in the work to figure out what this is all about. So that is something that I thought was very unique about your podcast and that I really appreciated because so often we hear these really good ghost stories but nobody can nobody even knows where to start right a lot right. of it you don't even know where to go to find out if there's any truth to the urban legend yeah. so i thought yeah. that that was really really unique 
Yeah. And that's great to hear. Cause that's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to tell this story from beginning to end. And I wanted that feeling of satisfaction because that's what I like. I like a mystery solved. Like I said, I'm so pragmatic. I want all the answers to be there. Um, and it took that many years to get down to the bottom of things. Cause it's more than just looking online. It's going to the library. It's going to the coroner's office. It's knocking on doors and talking to people. Um, not always my favorite thing, picking up the phone and calling people. Um, and sometimes it took a couple years for people to even get back to us and so then you know it just takes that amount of time um and it just takes all this really diligent hard work where you're literally out there pounding the pavement um as much as we want to be in front of a computer screen and like google stuff it only gets you so far you know um and that's kind of the fun of it um and stumbling across other other things too like the secret tunnels under downtown la you know you end up there and you're just like what i didn't even know this existed so <laughs> really fun <laughs> the yeah. process is fun Definitely. Well, I definitely, again, want to encourage our listeners to go check out the Los Feliz Murder Mansion podcast. Stacy, thank you so much for coming on today. Is there any, I want to be respectful of your time because I know we're almost at the 40 minute mark. Uh, is there any closing thought or any parting words you would want to relay to our audience about this story or about yourself or any, anything from that you learned from your investigation? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, just that we're an independent podcast. So I went and did all this on my own with my producer, Wes and um, DP, Chloe. Um, and the idea was that we would sell this idea. We have all this footage, you know, um, get a TV series made, a documentary, what have you. And instead, it was just like, you know, what? I'm just going to make this the way I want to make it um, and just put it out there. And we've had a lot of interest. Um, and for a while we were like top 25 in true crime and podcasts, which is really fun, really cool, but still it's like, we're still all scrappy and it still costs money to have the website and it costs money to, um, you know, host the podcast online. And, um, so yeah, we're still that little scrappy little indie podcast, but there is that feeling of gratification that like we've told this story. Um, and so it does also still feel really good. You, you know, even though we're still kind of like indie doing it on our own, it feels good to have the story out there. So I'm really grateful to you guys for um, getting the word out for more people to listen. I want everybody to hear this story so they know like the truth about this house. So, oh yeah. And that's another reason why I really wanted to bring you on is because we're also an indie podcast. I understand the struggle and the grind. And yes. <laughs> so anytime, anytime there's another indie podcast out there, that's doing the type of work that you're doing. I just feel like you guys need more publicity. So yeah, everyone really appreciate. It. Yeah. Check out the show notes for this episode, you guys, and make sure that you listen to Stacy's podcast. Thank you so much, Stacy, for coming Thank on. Thank you so much for having me. Great talking to you. Yes. Okay. I'll sure I'll talk to you soon. Okay, great. All right. Bye. bye. So Natalia, in closing, do you think that the curse of Griffith Park might have contributed towards the tragedy of the Los Feliz murder mansion? Or do you think it's unrelated? And just in general, what are your thoughts on this story? I definitely think that it contributed. I am a big believer in, in energy, mm -hmm. you know? And I think for whatever reason, energy does reside in some places like I, I believe those vortex things in like Arizona are real I do think that there's places that hold significance emotionally or perhaps just because 
of the way that the land is you know like when you go to a beautiful scene you have an emotional response to it and I think that has like an energetic reaction versus if you go to a place and there's overwhelming sadness or regret there I think those kinds of things are transient properties that can flow from person to person and from place to place I agree with that yeah I think that's really smartly said yeah thank you yeah uh worked really hard on that yeah um no but I I do think also to just, you know, get kind of scientific with it. I mean, humans are, we are herd animals. Like we are social creatures and we are supposed to help each other as communities so that we can survive and use collective knowledge to further our species so that we can um, make it, you know? Yeah. And I think that that, that quality in people is what, makes it so that we do feel like vibes off of things Mm. and I think especially from what Alyssa was saying she like intuitively got this bad vibe from that place like it's it was bad and 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 it was angry and it was angry and I I really believe that holds water I think that there especially in women there is like some sort of intuitive because we're so like emotionally wired I think we can pick up on like really subtle cues like that very, very easily. Yeah. Um, and you don't always have to know what it is or why it is, but it, it definitely exists. There has to be a reason for that, you know? Yeah. No, I definitely agree with that. And I think that um, I, I'm pretty sure Alyssa didn't even know that the house was haunted when she first moved into the house she lives. Yeah. She lives in currently. Um, and she's, she also talked about to me, like all of the haunted shit that's happened in the house she lives in down the street. So I do think that that maybe this points to some type of curse in the general area. Right. I mean, I do know that LA in general is full of like crazy sociopaths and who are very lost. And I, I think that the industry brings a lot of people who, are lost and they're under the influence of something other than their best intentions or good intentions. And it would be really easy for some sort of dark entity to kind of pick up on that, right. you know, because they're already like a shell of a person. Yeah. There's a lot of greed in the city, a yes. lot of stepping on people to get what you want. Yes. Uh, and I mean, you know, no shade to the Perelson family. We just genuinely don't know who they were yeah. really, but I think we can surmise that they were very concerned with appearances as a lot of people were in the 1950s. Yeah. So I do think that that greed tends to be people's undoing. Yeah, Yeah, it does. I think so too. Yeah. Well, that was the story of the Los Feliz so murder mansion, which occurred. It's it's frequently called the Christmas murder mansion because uh, the murders happened in December. Man, I really want to go in there and see it. I am so glad you said that, Natalia. But I don't want to pay or like have someone tell me I can go. I want to break in there. Oh, all right. Well, I was going to say that I reached out to somebody who has facilitated <gasps> other podcasters going inside the home before. Oh, my God. So we can go? And she said she might be able to get us in. So I oh, was going to yes. ask our audience, is this where you guys would like our next haunted vlog to be? Because we may be able to get oh in there. Oh, my God. Yes. yes. But see, I'm, like, interested in spying. Like, I want to open up all the drawers and, like, see all of this stuff. Right. I'm, like, really into spying on people. I used to babysit. And, like, when people would leave, I would, like, just go look at all their shit. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Don't hire Natalia is what we've learned from this podcast. But also I feel that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to read my sources really quickly. And then I'm going to ask you for our sign off. Yes. Sources for this episode include 
Inside infamous Los Feliz murder house, Lisa Bloom sold for $2.35 million by Sarah Painter for the New York Post. Dr. Harold Nathan Perelson, 1909-1959 memorials on findagrave.com. Ancestry.com. The real story behind LA's most famous and mysterious murder house by Adrian Glick Cudler for Curbed Magazine. The sinister story of LA's murder mansion by Strange Remains. The Public Library of Medicine. The Innis House article for wikipedia.org. House on Haunted Hill 1959 official trailer uploaded to YouTube by the channel Movie Clips Classic Trailers. The Los Feliz Murder Mansion, a seven-part documentary by Cloudy Day Pictures. And I just, again, want to shout out Stacy and say thank you so much for talking to me. Everybody go listen to her show. The Murder House by Jeff Mache from Medium.com. A Killer Price, Infamous Murder House Goes Up for Sale in Los Feliz, published by CBS News. Zillow.com and The Curse of Griffith Park, published at LAAlmanac.com. Wow. Natalia, would you like to do our sign-off? Yes. Uh, great episode, by the way. Thank, thank you. Thank you. BRB, going to go into my study and read dark novels for the next 12 hours. Hell yeah. Bye. Bye. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.